I invite you to open uh, your Bibles to the most famous chapter on the topic of love in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Love alone. It's going to be, as I often say, important for you to have your Bibles open in your lap or up on your phone because we're going to refer to it as we go through this morning in particular because we're not going to read the whole chapter at once. We're going to read it by sections, the whole chapter, but by sections. Steve Johnson and 1 Corinthians chapter 13 go way back. My first sermon was from this chapter. Fifteen years of age, Northside Baptist Church in Longview, Texas, about the size of this congregation, some weeks a little bigger, some weeks a little smaller. Surely the pastor only gave me a Wednesday night. My first sermon had to be on a Wednesday night. And I had discovered this amazing chapter that I personally had never seen before. And so I preached on this wonderful chapter and everyone smiled and seemed to enjoy it. And I had no idea that 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is as famous as it was. It became famous for me that, uh, that evening. This was where I preached my first sermon. And it was good. Not the sermon, the passage. It was good. This is the most quoted of all of Paul's writings. It's used at weddings, most of mine, at funerals, for instance, Princess Diana, and even presidential inaugurations, President Obama in 2009. And uh, before we dive in to this passage of Scripture, it's important for you to know, once again, that context matters. This chapter is beautiful all by itself. It's just a treasure, and in some ways, it stands alone. At the same time, it doesn't exist by itself. It comes as a part of the narrative that Paul was writing to the church at Corinth. And it doesn't take an expert to know there were problems in this church. It was troubled. In fact, it's not a very nice letter. Paul, well, he romps and tromps on some people's toes as he goes through this book. The church was badly divided. In the very first chapter, chapter 1, verse 11, Paul says, my brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this, one of you says, I follow Paul, another, I follow Apollos, another, I follow Cephas, and still another, I follow Christ. They had divided into, into political factions, as it were. Not only that, but there was strong animosity or anger, bitterness towards fellow church members. 1 Corinthians 6, 8. 
Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers. It was not a happy church. And some of the members were very proud of the gifts, spiritual gifts, that God had given them. That's the chapter before and the chapter after. It's the, chapter 13 is the sandwich between these two powerful passages. Paul has about uh, spiritual gifts. I, I am just amazed at the spirit of this church. In your covenant is built language that says we will work to support the unity of the church. And you do that well. Have you ever been a part of a bad church? Have you ever been a member of a church where there wasn't a lot of unity? Where there were problems? I have two close friends right now that are sharing the role of interim pastor of a church not an hour's drive away. And it is nasty. My personal advice to those two good friends was, I'm sorry, get out of Dodge. You don't need to be serving in that church. Can you imagine me telling two fellow ministers that they don't need to be working at a church? You are privileged. And the trust that you have, the fellowship that you have here in this church is as strong as steel and as fragile as a teacup. You need to guard the fellowship of this church so that you don't end up like Corinth. And 1 Corinthians chapter 13, this is how it's done. This is how the unity of a church fellowship is preserved. It's really, really important. And so, here is my sermon outline. You don't know me. I hate to tell folks where a sermon is going. I like surprises. But if you're a note taker or you just need something to hang the sermon on, here are the three points that the sermon is going to center around. Love alone counts. Love alone triumphs. And love alone endures. Counts. Triumphs. Endures. So now we're going to start with the first part, the first section. Love alone counts, the first three verses. And I'm going to ask Brother Scott Armstrong, before we begin reading the Scriptures, if he'd stand and ask a blessing on the reading of God's Word.
Amen. Paul writes, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love alone counts. Did you notice as Paul opened this chapter that he is speaking in the first person? He could so much relate to what's said in these first three verses. In terms of eloquence, he was really, really sharp. And uh, all of these things about knowledge and faith and, and, and generosity. One of the things that stands out to me is when he says in verse 2, if I have faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. When Paul started, he had no love. When Paul started, he was a persecutor of the church. This is the book in which Paul says, I am chief of sinners. So, tongues of men and angels. Of men, probably eloquence. Of angels, probably the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues. Now, I'm going to leave that sermon to Pastor Faber, okay? I'm not going to launch out into that. I'm going to let someone else, someone better skilled than I, to talk with you about that particular thing. But this is one of the issues at Corinth. The people at Corinth were proud of their spiritual gifts. They held others in less regard if they didn't have the gifts that they had, like gifts of prophecy and mysteries and knowledge. These supernatural gifts were a matter of pride at Corinth. Paul talked about mountain-moving faith. So you remember the words of Jesus. If you had the faith of a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, be planted into the sea. So far as I know, there's no record of anyone doing landscaping or earth moving through faith, okay? I, I really can't, I, I wouldn't pretend to, to properly interpret what Jesus meant when he said that, but apparently it was not bulldozing, because that's, that's just not what we see in the New Testament. But Paul is emphasizing the fact that if I had all of these amazing gifts and ability, if I didn't have love, it would just be petty noise. I, I thought about your praise team that, that works up here. Um, the church that my wife I, and I attend, First Navasota, has sometimes percussion, um, drums, electronic drums with electronic cymbals. Colwell, same thing. You know, symbols are great as an accent, but I don't think that would make a great percussion sound for the entire worship service. Just clang, 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 clang. It would, it would, get, it would get old. 
tambourine's great, you know, just great, but not not symbols all the time. Without love, just petty noise. There are gifted people in this church. There are people here who can proclaim, who can worship, lead in worship, who can use their gifts teaching in Sunday school, who can are marvelously generous, merciful, kind. But without love, these gifts have no value. Part two, love alone triumphs. Verse four, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love alone triumphs. Of the chapter I think this section is my favorite. Love alone triumphs. Someone wiser than I has helped develop a sort of category of this list. What love isn't? Envious, boastful, proud, rude, self-seeking, easily angered. Love keeps no record of wrongs. And doesn't delight in evil. And what is love? Patient, kind. Love rejoices with the truth. Always protects. Always trusts. Always hopes. Always perseveres. This last one. Perseverance. This is a hard one. This is when you're in the midst of a struggle. And what you have to do is not give up. Is just keep holding on. You might be in a relationship with someone in your family. And that relationship is not at all easy. And sometimes it's, it's conflict and you have to make hard decisions and, and say things that are hard to say or do things that are tough to do. But in that difficult relationship, love perseveres. Love continues to care. Once again, a commentator wiser than I said, try this. Put Jesus' name with each of these qualities. Jesus isn't envious. He was never boastful or proud or rude. He never sought after himself. He was never easily angered. He kept no record of wrongs. If he had, he would have kicked the disciples out early on, right? He doesn't delight in evil, but he is patient and kind. He does rejoice with the truth. He always protects, always trusts, 
always hopes, always perseveres. This chapter doesn't just describe love, it describes God. Because God is love. Love always triumphs. And love alone endures. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. We know in part and we prophesy in part. But when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. Love alone endures. This section is sometimes hard to understand. As a matter of fact, if we sat down in small groups and talked about this section, some of us would have different ideas and interpretations from others. And once again, I'm going to let Pastor Faber straighten all of that out when he gets back. But the end result is the same. Even if we might differ in some of the details, in the ultimate understanding, things are pretty clear. And it starts with this. We live in in-between times in the new kingdom of God. The big word for it is realized eschatology. The kingdom is already here, and it's not yet here at the same time. The kingdom of God, or the new kingdom, began with the first advent of Jesus. John the Baptist proclaimed it. In Matthew chapter 3, in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea saying, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus focused on it. It was one of his favorite topics. In Mark chapter 1 he said, The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. So many of his parables, so many of his sermons were about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of God is like a man who went to a far country. Just over and over again, Jesus talked about the kingdom. It began with him and his arrival but it will not fully arrive until the second advent. There are promises we have not yet 
received. Paul said in Romans chapter 8, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruit of the Spirit groan inwardly as we await eagerly our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Some promises haven't come true yet. The whole book of Revelation is about the second coming, the second advent. Jesus said once again in Mark chapter 13, at that time men will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and He will send His angels and gather His elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. That is the second advent. That is the second coming. And we live in the middle. We're in between. Some things won't last past the in-between. Prophecies, tongues, knowledge. Once again, that's Faber's sermon to preach, not mine. Our imperfect efforts. Paul says in verse 10, when perfection comes, imperfection will disappear. He talks about how when he was a child, he spoke as a child, and now he's grown up. The church, we're moving through childhood, getting prepared as a bride fit for Christ at His second coming. We see poorly now. Soon we will see face to face. Corinth was famous, among other things, for their mirrors. Not made of glass, made of bronze. Can you imagine polishing bronze enough to be able to see your face in it at all? That was a great mirror back in Jesus' day. So it's kind of hard for us to understand. Imagine this. Imagine you have a photograph of someone you love. Your spouse, present or gone to be with the Lord. Uh, 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 your, your child when they were a baby. You can see that photograph. You can kiss it. But it's nothing like kissing them, seeing them in person. Now we see poorly. Then we will see face to face. Love alone endures. It never fails. Here's the deal. It thrives in between. It's one of the richest things that we have right now, perhaps the richest. But it's not going to pass away. It's going to continue after the second advent. It won't stop. It never fails. So Paul concludes, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, 
But the greatest of these is love. Most of the commentators I read said this was probably a song or a litany, uh, a public reading that the church knew well. That these three foundational things were, were widely known. The essence of Christianity. We have faith that Jesus indeed was born of the Virgin Mary. That God, through His Holy Spirit, indwelled her in such a way that she gave birth to a child that was fully God and fully man. We believe that He had an amazing ministry of preaching and teaching and doing marvelous miracles that no one had ever dreamed of before. That He was betrayed, that He was crucified. And on the third day he rose again. We believe these things by faith. We believe by faith that one day he's coming again. Those are things of faith. Hope. We talked about hope last week. How hope is the expectation that God will do what he says. Our hope is that all of the promises in the precious Bible that we have with us today, they will come true that God does hear our prayers, that He will always be with us. We hope for our redemption in heaven. Not like that's something that might or might not happen, but that it's an expectation that God will do what He says if we put our faith in Jesus, ask Him to forgive us, and we make Him our, our, our leader, our Lord, then we will go and be with Him in eternity. That's our hope. These three things are the essence of Christianity. But after the second advent, after Jesus comes back, two of these three won't be needed. Our faith will be sight. We won't have to trust Jesus to take us to heaven anymore. We'll be there. All these things that, that we have held in faith, all of these hopes that we have treasured, the loved ones that have gone beyond, and we hope that we'll see them again. Once again, not a wish, but a firm assurance that God will do what He says. Hope, it'll be realized. We won't need hope anymore. We will live it as a reality. But love will continue. When, when I try to imagine heaven, you know, I think of worship, and I think of holiness, and I think of awe in being in God's presence. And and as the song says, you know, what, what will I do? Will I dance? Will I weep? Will I worship? One thing we'll do. We'll love. We'll still have love. Life lessons. A while ago, we took this list and we put Jesus' name into each one. Turnabout's fair play. 
put your name in front of each one. Is Steve envious or boastful or proud or rude? Does he seek himself? Is he easily angered? Is Steve patient, kind? Does he protect, trust, hope, persevere? These qualities of love are meant for us. They define who we are as a person and in our family and in our church. Secondly, don't forget the lesson of the Corinthians. We're all gifted in some way. We all have treasures that God has given us. Don't compare your gifts and abilities to someone else. Don't say, well, I wish I were like them. Or can't they be more like me? Or I must be better because I can do X, Y, Z. No gift or ability is complete until it is bathed in love. So, let's just imagine you had no gifts at all. I don't believe that about anyone who's a follower of Christ. God puts in the body the members He wants to be there, everyone, and He gifts us all. But if it were true and you had no gifts, you could love. You could excel in love. What did Jesus say the greatest commandment was? It had two parts. Love God. Love your neighbor. You can do that. That's a part of the first advent of Jesus coming to teach us about love. Let's stand. Heavenly Father, now may your Holy Spirit take these words and apply them to our heart so that we might be better followers of you Father, may the Holy Spirit use these words to draw those who don't know you to come to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.